Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with longtime abortion activist and more recent bridge person, Francis Kissling. There's a shorter produced version of this at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Hello? Hello? Francis? Yes. Oh, hi. This is Krista Tippett. You're a little low. I can't hear you very well. Okay. Um... Can you, t- Chris, what do you recommend? Do we want her to turn up her volume? Okay, you're talking to them. Same ball, your IFB is coming through strong, but to Krista is almost coming through as nothing. Hmm. Mm-mm, I can't hear you. <clears throat> okay, I can testing. hear somebody saying I can't hear. <laughs> Am I any louder now? Are, oh, you so- are perfectly legible. Oh, good. Perfectly audible. Okay, good. <laughs> Well, I'm uh, I'm glad to meet you, so to speak. Likewise. Glad to have you at the other end of the microphone. Do Do you have any questions for me before we start? No. Okay. I'm <laughs> easygoing. All right. <laughs> Are you familiar with my show? I'm not at all. Okay. Where do you live? In- I live in D.C. Oh, okay. Well, we're on um, seven a.m. Sunday morning there on Whammo, oh. but we're also I mean a lot of more and more people podcast so. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Well, let's I'll, have this I'm conversation. Sure I'm sure I'll start paying attention to you. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> you, you just get more viewers one at a time. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. Um, so, so uh, you know, one of the things that I say we do in this show is we we talk at the speak at the intersection of theology and real life, great ideas uh-huh. and human experience, and I think that that's an intersection that you walk and talk about all the time. So that this will feel. Very natural. And then, of course, the great thing is we, we get to have a real conversation. We'll edit this later. Okay. Um, so, uh, and you're going to go for about an hour, we're gonna an go hour for, and a half? Yeah, we're going to go for about an hour. And we'll okay, go a little fine. longer if we feel like we need to. But okay. um, where I'd like to start, um, and let me just say, we're, you know, we've been, uh, I, I think that this notion of civil conversation is something that we try to model on the show generally. But we uh-huh. have been focusing on it um, from some different angles recently because it feels like something that's so urgent for our common life. <laughs> yes, yeah. And uh, so, you know, I obviously I, I want to talk to you from many directions about this work you've done and this mm-hmm. passion you have and and the matter of abortion and your insights into that. Um, but just as importantly, you know, I want to talk to you about how you, how you navigate that how you navigate disagreement around that, and um, and, and it, mm-hmm. I sense that that's become more and more important to you. So, so that's where we're going to go. Okay. All right. So, what, but I want to start um, in the beginning, <laughs> um, uh-huh. and this is where I start with everyone. They're a quantum physicist or a theologian or whatever. Um, and I just want to hear about. I know you were work, raised in a working class Polish American family, single mother. Um, was was there a, a was there a religious background? to that. Was your mother devout Catholic? Uh, No, my mother was not a devout Catholic. Um, She, of course, she did grow up in a Catholic family, uh, but I don't really think any, she was one of seven children, I don't think 
I don't remember any of my aunts or uncles as well as my mother being particularly devout. Uh, And, of course, she divorced uh, her first husband when I was about uh, five or six years old. Mm -hmm. And very shortly after that, remarried and remarried a Protestant. And um, so for me, this was a very, although she raised all of us as Catholics, we all went to parochial school. Uh, She and my stepfather drove us to church on a regular basis. Huh. We, um, you know, she she was involved in my school. She used to bake cookies, and um, my stepfather was a milkman, uh, among other things, and he would bring buttermilk and cookies to the nuns at <laughs> Christmas, and she took them around town. But I think religion was, you know, notably unimportant uh, in her life. And um, I think I'm the only one of the four children who developed any kind of real interest in religion. Um, I now have a, my youngest sister is now um, an evangelical fundamentalist um, Christian, but my other sister, and my other sister has recently returned to the Catholic Church um, after a, a close brush with death, mm. and my brother is totally uninterested. Okay, so well, there's a there, there's a snapshot. That's a good American story. So, but so how did you then end up becoming a nun at the age of nineteen? I mean, how did that happen? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I did go to Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, my role, you know, growing up when you grow up in a a working class uh, Catholic family. Uh, with most of your models in life being working class and a mother who had uh, two bad marriages, um, the life of a nun looks pretty good <laughs> and in many ways. So mm. I think, you know, in some ways, things are a combination of the high and the low. Mm. And, um, you know, on the low side, I think this just looked to me like a good way of, of, of having a good, a decent life. Um, and on the highway, I, I've always had this passion for, uh, you know, doing good and living a good life and um, kind of a loner sort of a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I saw religious life as a way of, of uh, really doing good. And nuns were the smartest uh, kindest, although some of them were pretty mean, but they right. varied from the meanest to the kindest uh, people I knew. And this was uh, just pre-Vatican II, is that right? Yes, Early 1960s. yes, 1961. Uh-huh. Um, and but that didn't last very long. You, no, I think that you know what happened with for, what happened for me was, I mean, first of all, obviously, I had had an unconventional Catholic childhood. Uh, for someone who went into the convent with a mother who was divorced and remarried. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some ideas about Catholicism that were different from most Catholics, even as a woman, that a young girl, in the sense that, you know, I didn't think divorce was the worst thing in the world, and I didn't see any reason why people um, shouldn't get remarried. Um, and I certainly didn't think my mother was going to hell or was an adulteress. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I thought that people like me needed to be active in the church. You know that that it was that that period where things were beginning to change, and so that really attra- I think that was part of my attraction to religious life—the feeling that I had something to offer that might be a little bit different. Um, but what really happened to me while I was in the convent was that you have a lot of time to reflect. 
And I realized that I just didn't want to be a representative of an institution that I had the kind of disagreements with that I had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were just there, what, a year? Is that right? I mean, yeah, it was a pretty under a year. Short-lived. Yes. So... Um, As a friend of mine who was a mother superior often says, uh, definitely a chicken. <laughs> okay. Um, and I wonder, you know, I'm just, I, I, I'm trying to see the the trajectory of uh, the things you, you yeah. care about and you came to care about. And you, you've written and said to others that you were never deeply interested in having children or imagining right. yourself as, as having a lifelong marriage. And yet, at a pretty young age, this issue of abortion became you became very passionate about this and an, and an activist on this um, uh-huh. and so you know where where did that originate in in all of that well it actually wasn't i would say it wasn't at that young an age because i became involved in i never thought about abortion um you know i often say that you know when you when you grew up before abortion was a political issue mm. um it was never mentioned B- abortion was not something that came up in um catholic schools uh in the 50s and even into the 60s, it really became a political, theopolitical issue um, after Roe v. Wade. And so I really had almost no exposure to abortion whatsoever. I, I think that for me, the starting point was, as a younger woman, was sexuality um, in the sense that, first of all, I had a mother who had a, a sexual life that was condemned by the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself, because I had no interest, I had no seeming interest in marriage uh, and had no particular urge, had no desire to have children. Uh, but in my early years, in my 20s, after I left the convent and left Catholic school and moved to Greenwich Village and went to the New School for Social Research and mm-hmm. became active against the war in Vietnam, um, you know, my thought was that, you know, really, I really didn't think God intended me to never have sex. Just and because this I was didn't the 60s again, too, right? This is, I mean, the this sexuality was, the was being discovered yeah, in a way. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I was part of that, that generation that looked at sexuality, um, you know, in a, in a freedom uh, ple- freedom and pleasure, but not divorced from responsibility paradigm. Mm-hmm. And so... That was the first separating factor. And then because I also was strongly motivated not to have children, from the very beginning, contraception was a part of my life. So those were big dividing lines for me as a Catholic. And as a young person, I was not active in the church at all. Um, And it was only in 1970 that the issue of abortion entered my consciousness because two physicians whom I knew opened an abortion clinic when the law changed in New York and asked me if I was willing to run the clinic. And I said yes. And I had no, I'm not quite sure at a conscious level why I didn't have the revulsion that some Catholics and other religious people have against abortion. But it it simply was not, it it simply was not in me. Hmm. And, And so that was my first exposure to the abortion issue was dealing with women who faced what for them were deeply difficult situations in pregnancy, who were suffering very much from a pregnancy that carried with it 
all sorts of problems for them. So that that was my first experience. And my sympathy was, my sympathy, I guess my sympathy always from mother forward has been um, for women. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you um, have been a, a pretty clear, you, you've always been on the um, pro-choice side of this equation. And, you know, I, uh, these are very simple, simplistic categories, and um, so yeah. I, I want to. I don't want to. We're not going to take them <laughs> as our as our defining poles necessarily. But you, right. you've also, um, as far as I can tell, always invoked uh, notions of morality and responsibility yeah. into your into your movement, your side of this this great American uh, confusion and debate. And so, you yes. know how you. I think you just started to talk about that, but how. How did you already in those early days when you first experienced abortion by way of women who were who were having abortions think about morality and responsibility in that in that kind of life experience? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that that again, I because I had broken with you know Catholic orthodoxy on the subject of sexuality and and the subject of birth control. Um, my mind was more open to look at the abortion question in a different way. And um, I simply, you know, in a simple way, you could say the gospel message of compassion uh, rated a lot more highly in my mind than that of punitiveness. Um and definitely, as if I was a feminist and am a feminist, the sense that, you know, the, the Catholic Church just simply had almost no understanding of what women's lives were like. Uh, they were just so removed from a sense of, of what it meant to be a woman, that, a woman uh, and to deal with pregnancy, that, that it was fairly easy for me to see um, the decision to have an abortion— as a, an important one for women's lives. I, I think I separated, and I think this is, this is still key for me, I separate, I, I think having experienced and, and seen what women think about when they become pregnant, the, mm-hmm. the challenges that they face, I separate to some extent the fact that there are very few good choices once you become pregnant. And so once a woman becomes pregnant um, is not the time to deal with uh, what, ha- what went before. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing simply at that point with what is the best thing I can do in a lousy set of circumstances. As if that is, you, if you find yourself pregnant and you don't right. want to be pregnant or it doesn't make sense for you to or be pregnant. Or it creates great difficulties mm-hmm. for you, whether mm-hmm. the difficulties are economic mm-hmm. or emotional or educational or mm-hmm. uh, you're very young. Uh, all, all of the, the, the story of each woman's life, you've been abandoned by a guy that you loved and thought loved you. Um, and you go down the path. I mean, what I would do with women is you go down the paths. What would the path look like if you had a child? What would the path look like if you had an abortion? What would the path look like if you had a child and gave it up for adoption? Mm -hmm. And you see, or at least I saw, that in many cases, not all, 
the path would be difficult no matter which choice was made. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you, you, your heart just goes out to enabling people to make whatever decision they believe will work best for them in that situation. Mm-hmm. That's one side of it. The other side of it is that, you know, I saw many women who, um, the women I saw were very different. There were women who were, uh, you know, this was New York. There were women who were extremely responsible, uh, very self-sufficient, moving up in careers, um, had used contraception, uh, knew exactly what they wanted, and for whom abortion was not a big decision. Mm -hmm. That's not the majority. I also saw women who were going through life numb, and frozen in terms of uh, making any decisions about their life whatsoever. The dis- you know, who became pregnant without using contraception, um, without thinking about what kind of a relationship they were in, um, you know, and who were, from my perspective, troubled and not taking charge of their own lives. And for me, the the larger moral dimension to this question is the value and importance and responsibility connected with the, and I think this is religious for me, mm-hmm. connected with the power that women have to give life. And that the desire, you know, the, the, those where, where I come into like a sense of, you know, the word obligation, the word responsibility. For me, those words apply at the front, most sharply at the front end of sexuality. Okay. That's where I, you know, become sometimes uh, to the chagrin of my pro-choice colleagues, um, preachy. Okay. In their minds. All right. So I see what you're saying. So there's the there's there's a whole host of there are a whole host of moral things at stake. Yeah. In the act of becoming pregnant, but then you're saying it's another set of decisions it's and new decision. deliberations entirely when when a woman is pregnant and the question is what That's to right. do. Mm-hmm. That's and right. It's a new of, decision. Mm-hmm. It's a, okay. it's a new decision. Mm-hmm. And I think for many people who are opposed to abortion, um, these elements are not separable. Right. right, that there there is this sense that that there is this old punitive sense that I grew up with and saw my mother subjected to, which is you made your bed, right. now you right. lie in it, mm-hmm. you take responsibility for the error you made, and you have a child, mm-hmm. and that to me is very flawed way of moral decision-making, mm-hmm. uh, that, that really you have to look at the situation that is before you. And you may have gotten there in a way that was irresponsible, um, thoughtless, whatever, but regardless of that, uh, now you face a new situation and a new set of moral factors is at play in making a decision about what you're going to do. And and of course, I think if um, if there were some some a theological thinker here, maybe <clears throat> a Catholic um, 
official, they would they would say that you're not representing the entire reasoning behind what's wrong, but behind the reason that a woman would be told that she uh, shouldn't have an abortion. Because oh, no, then, then there course. would also be this deliberation about the moral status of the fetus. Right? That's right. And I, That's right. So, I mean, we'll talk about it. We'll keep talking about all of this. I, you know, I think it is interesting to me that it was when you went onto the board of Catholics for Choice, which you later... Uh, ran, that you right. also reconnected with your faith. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Uh-huh. Well, there are two things I would say about that. Mm-hmm. The first is, why did I go on the board of Catholics for Choice? And, uh, you know, as someone who had worked in the abortion field from 1970 to uh, 19, I think it was about 1978, 79 that I went on the board, um, there was always a sense of dissatisfaction that I had with the framing and thinking, conceptualization of the choice movement. Um, Even though I was not at the least bit, you know, the once a Catholic, always a Catholic thing is relatively true. And so even though I was not an active Catholic, I was very influenced by my Catholic education. And I thought the aversion in the choice movement to the word morality was uh, uh, wrong, um, because I think there there is morality at stake in procreative decision-making and in abortion and contraception and everything that goes around it. And that um, to reduce something as uh, powerful and critical as the decision around giving life or not giving life to politics um, was flawed in its... Um, in its being, mm-hmm. but also it was flawed in the sense that um, uh, this doesn't connect with where people live in America. So I always felt, you know, that there wasn't enough for me in the abortion, you know, enough content in the abortion area that, that made sense to me. And Catholics for Choice seemed to me to be the place where... Um, because it was a, mm-hmm. a small organization uh, without a very strong constituency, um, which, of course, is one of the reasons it's criticized, that one had more freedom to bring morality into the public discourse than one would have at, say, Planned Parenthood or NARAL. Okay. So that was one of the things that attracted me to it. The um, other thing... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, no, uh, go ahead. Um, do, do, was that your phone ringing? Yeah, you want me to shut Could it you off? you shut it off and then yeah, tell me the second part of it? <laughs> I didn't even know it was on. Let me, let me do okay. that. It'll take me a All second. Right. Okay. Okay. It's off. Okay. So, <clears throat> Catholics for Choice allowed you to combine your your uh, beliefs about choice and to to speak and think about that morally. Mm-hmm. And then you were going to give me a second. Well, and the second thing was, you know, since I had not been particularly active as a Catholic, I never considered myself anything else. But the question arose when they asked me to go on the board and then ultimately asked me to run the organization was, uh, was I a Catholic? Mm -hmm. And did I want to be a Catholic? I left, uh, I left the convent because I didn't want to be a representative of an institution that I um, had some serious disagreements with. And, um, now here I was going to be representing 
a certain type of Catholic or a certain type of perspective on Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I did some soul searching about it. And I I thought that, you know, I said, well, let let me take this as a serious opportunity to look again at the meaning of Catholicism or religion in my life. Um, could there be a, oh, this is very complicated, but mm. in the same sense as there could, could there be, I remember saying to myself and to others, well, could there, there is, you know, there are these philosophical concepts and psychological concepts of the will to love and the will to believe. I'm sorry, the will to love and the will to power. And could there also be something that I could exercise, which would be a will to believe? Hmm. And I thought I'd like to explore that. And so it was with that frame of mind that I entered Catholics for Choice. And then I discovered very quickly um, as I began to, because remember, I had left Catholicism as an active engagement prior to the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm reentering Catholicism post-Second Vatican Council. And I discovered that the way in which I looked at Catholicism, which was more open and expansive, um, was the way in which all sorts of Catholic people, nuns, priests, uh, an occasional bishop, many theologians, looked at Catholicism. And so I felt quite comfortable. Hmm. So I'd like to talk about um, uh, your perspective, your experiences and your perspective across this sweep of time about what goes wrong in our culture as Mm. we try to navigate this issue of abortion and also how that, how our navigation of that has changed, you know, even how you've changed in your approach to this across time. Mm -hmm. Um, Where would you start to talk about that? Uh, It's hard to figure out where to start, Mm -hmm. um, whether to start you know, chronologically or more towards the end of the spectrum. I think that, um, first of all, I think from what I've already said about my attraction to Catholics for choice, I always had an approach to abortion that was somewhat different from that of the mainstream choice movement, Mm -hmm. uh, in that politics never interested me very much. Um, You know, the idea that abortion was about getting the right people elected. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a... uh, Getting the right laws passed. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. It was was a public... it, It was a public battle, of course, but that it was something in which there were extremists on the side of those opposed to abortion and um, rational people on the side of choice uh, never quite fit for me completely. I think that I had the advantage, as I, since I did this work as a Catholic, even though many Catholic venues were closed um, because of the absolutism of the bishops on this issue, um, I, I probably talked to more people over the years who were opposed to abortion than most folks in the choice movement. Mm-hmm. And while I certainly think there are, uh, there is a twin absolutism between um, those who think there is only one value at stake, the value of women's identity and rights, or on the opposite side of the spectrum, the value of the fetus, um, 
that for most people, including me, both of those values exist. And the abortion issue is one in which one mediates those values and others. So that's that was always my sense of of this, and I was never very comfortable, um, except in terms of picking on the Pope. I love to pick on the Pope, and <laughs> okay. he's sort of the exception to my rationality. Um, you know, so with him, I'm pretty willing to be irrational and tough. Okay. But with the rest of humanity, I kind of don't particularly like casting people as extremists or evil or any of that. So so that was always a, a source of discomfort um, for me in the movement. So let me let me ask you this way. I mean, for example, a couple of years ago, I moderated a, a discussion between three generations of evangelicals. Uh-huh. And one of them was Chuck Colson at the elder yeah. end and also at the most conservative end. And then they were, you know, there was somebody there who was, a, 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 I think he would call himself a progressive, social, socially progressive evangelical. And there was someone who's part of the new monastics movement. So it's kind of this spiritual yep. renewal movement that is evangelical, <laughs> but kind of out on the edges, like yep. monasticism and Catholicism has always been. And um, what was interesting is that they held very different theologies on all of this. Abortion was something that on one hand they all, I think, agreed as a sin, but mm-hmm. then they went to very divergent places about what that meant, right? It, so, right. So, for some right. Of the, so for some of the—so for Charles Colson, it did mean that you would, you would look to elected officials as part of what Christians should be about. Um, mm-hmm. For one of them, uh, who was a pastor, he felt that abortion was a sin, but felt that poverty is often at the root of abortion, and so that if a church mm-hmm. wants to work, you know, that it should be working on behalf of women and not right. necessarily electing pro-life candidates. So, right. So, but one thing I asked them, and I don't really think I got a satisfying answer to it. I'd like to ask you is, why do you think it is that this issue? has become such mm-hmm. such a lightning rod and kind of it gets it's 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 often put together with issues of or other issues around sexuality or you know gay marriage right but that one is moving in a different direction right and abortion is the one that is um, where everybody you know at least in our pub, public dialogue is everybody's in the trenches and um it's it's hard to see any way forward, at least just reading newspapers. So, right, what is what is it about this issue that that makes it so difficult and so important? Mm. Well, I think there are many things uh, about it that that have cre- that have uh, lent to the kind of intransigence or intractability that abortion has become in our society. Mm-hmm. I, I think, first of all, abortion is... I think Okay, some people would disagree with me about this on the choice side. Abortion in and of itself is not a positive good. Okay? It has positive outcomes. It may indeed often be necessary. But unlike, say, homosexuality in which what you are dealing with, for most people, is the positiveness of human relationship, partnership, love, Mm -hmm. 
um, all of those good things that some people think people of the same sex shouldn't enjoy, but nobody questions that those are goods. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the case of abortion, you are dealing always with the destruction of life. It may not be life that has, that is personal. It may not be of the highest value. Uh, it doesn't, in my opinion, have rights. But I think, particularly as time has passed, we are all striving to create a world, or most of us are striving to create a world, in which life, in all its forms, is fostered and nurtured. Mm-hmm. And abortion, in some ways, goes against that. So it, it, it's, it, if, you, if you have a kind of absolutism, or, you know, if, if you don't contextualize it, and you just look at it, even if you're not looking at it as murder or killing, you know, in, in the grossest terms, mm-hmm. but simply as the interruption of life processes that we would prefer under other circumstances go forward, it always has a dimension of loss to it. And so that's very difficult to deal with in political context, which is how we deal with it. So I think that's part of it. What is it about the political context that makes that? It it removes the possibility of context, does it? I mean, it turns everything into a vote. That's right. Something is either legal or illegal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's either legal or illegal. Mm-hmm. And that's a very difficult way of dealing with, I mean, it's the same thing with, you know, end-of-life issues or uh, many other issues that we deal with that are moral and ethical issues, health care issues in our society. It's very difficult to reduce them mm-hmm. to yes or no. And I think in that sense, both movements you know, the choice movement and the life movement, and I'll use life for the purpose of, mm-hmm. of you know, a graciousness, um, have so focused on an absolute yes or no perspective to this that the context gets very, very, very lost. And the other thing I would say is the other difference is that abortion is something that enters a person's life at a specific moment and leaves it very quickly. Mm-hmm. Homosexuality is part of one's daily identity. Right. And so the need of people who are GLBTQ, etc., to, to find a place in the world in which their, the totality of their lives is accepted is much stronger. Mm-hmm. And for most people, most of us don't want to think about abortion. And even women who have abortions don't want to think about abortion all of the time. They don't want to make, they don't make abortion, for the most part, a defining part of who they are and their identity. Right. They have an abortion and they move on. Right. And and even in our political life, I mean, let's say, let's look at that that list of things you just, I mean, the, the gay marriage or homosexuality, sexual orientation, end of life issues, um, health care, some of these difficult quandaries that we have to take mm-hmm. up politically. 
although the context gets lost in the moment of the yes or no vote, um, our culture is full of stories of right the right. first lesbian couple to get married who'd lived together for fifty years, right? Yes, or, absolutely. Right, or That's the right. or the end of life stories. I mean, there are there right. are thousands and millions of incredible faces and right. stories of human beings who you can relate to, which which does shift people's way of thinking about these things as issues. Abortion does remain does remain more abstract because, as you say. Uh, I think for most women, that moment, as you say, that moment in time is a moment of sadness, grief, confusion, and not something that you wear on your sleeve for the rest of your life, right? Not something you don't have all these stories that women are... That's right. And society doesn't want to hear these stories. I mean, we we have, I think that, that to the extent the movement against abortion has gone beyond politics, you know, beyond the electoral or the legislative arena. It has been, um, and I would say to, for in, in some ways unwittingly and in some ways conscious, conscious a, a battle in the culture to stigmatize abortion. There's a, a way in which uh, those opposed to abortion say, no, 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 we don't want to stigmatize the women. The, the women are uh, tragic uh, victims of circumstances, um, you know, all, you know, th- there's problems with that language, but nonetheless, it's mm-hmm. not, it's not a a punitive language. Mm-hmm. But what is stigmatized are the physicians who perform abortions, some of whom are murdered, um, many of whom are picketed, uh, the the advocates on bo- on the choice side, uh, abortion itself. That the these these things are so reviled in the discourse of those who are opposed to choice. And that revulsion and stigmatization of the person who performs an abortion spills over into the consciousness of the women who have abortions. And so why would you, not that I think women should, I, I don't think women have any obligation to tell their abortion story to anybody. We all have a right to keep parts of our lives unto ourselves. But the culture doesn't, the, the culture of revulsion on the, stigma, on the anti-choice side makes it very, very difficult for women who would be willing to talk about their stories to do so. And when they talk about their stories, they are judged. When, you know, I, I remember there was a campaign on the choice side. Um, we are your daughters, your sisters, your mothers. You know, those of those women who have abortions are every woman, which is certainly true. Um, and women were encouraged to come out and tell their stories. And I remember being in a park. I think it might even have been here in Washington, D.C., where there was a speak out. And women got up and told their abortion stories. And I found it very painful hmm. because it was very obvious to me that the crowd was evaluating each woman's story, was not not approaching her from an empathic hmm. point of view, right. just listening to learn, but like a judge and a jury. Did she have good enough reasons? Was she a good enough woman that abortion was justified for her? Was she together or untogether? How was she dressed? All of those things were part of that conversation. It was it was quite painful. 
So I'm I'm really aware that you and I uh, are talking as though there are two sides to this issue, which is how we talk about it in our public life. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's pro-life and pro-choice. I, I, I remember, though, being so struck by hearing about the uh, uh, results of that same poll out of the 2004 election where we got the yep. God gap, <laughs> yep, <laughs> where yep. it showed this moral values gulf. But hearing that in that same poll, a majority of people who had voted, a majority including Democrats and Republicans, um, came out for abortion with some limits, right? So, right. so on the un- on the one hand, there are, you know I think right now the one the poll that gets kicked around a lot is the Gallup poll, two thousand nine, that showed that at right. this point fifty one percent of Americans are pro life uh, against abortion. But but I know that you're you're steeped in this, and and I, I'm yep. aware of some of it too. What, what what the research says when there's any nuance to it is that in fact there is a broad consensus um, in the middle of that. Lots of details to be worked out. But, but, yes. but <laughs> let's talk about that, what you know yeah. about where we are collectively as a nation with this. Okay. First of all, I think that 2004 in some ways was, for me and I think for this issue, a moment of great sea change. And that, um, you know, it was what the popular word now is it was a game changer. Right. <laughs> um, so, but I think that not too many people have recognized that no. it, was a, it was a game changer. And so nobody's playing in this new field, you know, that, <laughs> that the sides still remain mostly ossified in what it was before 2004 and fight the game change, you know, like, no, that's not what any of it meant. And so I'll just put that on the table. And I'm, I'm trying to be different than that, for yes. whatever, whether it's better or worse. But at any rate, that's what, where I am. And I think that, that what became evident at that point was, first of all, on the side of those who have been opposed to legal abortion and who see it as very immoral, essentially immoral, but who are religious and progressive on many, many other issues, they realized that they had to change on abortion. Um, I think that they made the first move. And that move uh, was the notion that you know, and, and a person like David Gashi, the evangelical, I think is the best, the example of the best version of this shift. Okay. It was the recognition that what we have been doing in being against abortion for the past 30 years has gotten us nowhere. Trying to make abortions illegal is not going to happen. And there is no evidence that the number of abortions has declined significantly. And so we have to concentrate on getting the number of abortions down by other methods than illegality. This was not well received by the choice movement, and there are some good reasons it wasn't. I mean, languaging between both sides really needs a lot of work and distrust. But at any rate, I saw that as a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, and by the same token, from the choice side, at least where I stand, it's also true that we have not only have we not retained 
the political legal strategy hasn't really worked for us. Yes, abortion is still legal, but it is so much more restricted, and particularly restricted for women at the margins, that uh, the, the vision that we had about equality as part of um, access to abortion has has eroded, not been achieved. Right. I mean, and, it's it's more restricted, and there are more a yes. greater percentage percentage of Americans say that they are actively against abortion. Well, you know, it's not that that's not quite true. I read the statistics somewhat differently, okay. and I think uh, let me let me just say why I think that is. I think the question that became central is this question: Are you would you would you characterize yourself as more pro life or more pro choice? That was the broad question. Okay. It wasn't are you for or against abortion. I think the meaning of pro-life has changed dramatically in society in the last 10 years. In the beginning, pro-life, in the beginning, 70, 75, 80, pro-life meant anti-abortion. It didn't mean anything else. Pro-life now means so much more to so many people. It has been presented in much more visionary terms. It's an environmental statement. Right. It's an animal rights statement. What is it? A consistent ethic of life, right? The yes. And, and it means things, to, you know, people are more, you know, it was de classe in the 70s and the 80s to be pro-life. It meant you were a redneck anti-abortionist. That isn't what pro-life means anymore. Pro-life now means you are concerned with a... I mean, obviously, there are still people who are only concerned with abortion and use that term. But there are many more people who would call themselves pro-life in a very positive kind of way. And I think that's what that means. And I think if you go dug deeper with those people who identify as pro-life, a very considerable segment of them would fall into that category you described, which is that they believe abortion should be legal, but they would like our society to send a signal that it takes abortion seriously and that the way they the only way they can think of for society to do that is to is to restrict or regulate abortion mm-hmm. when they happen Be- under what circumstances under what circumstances mm-hmm. are there waiting periods mm-hmm. uh, what kind of information are, um, are women given? We show our public disapproval by not paying for abortions for poor women. And for me, the challenge to the pro-choice side is that we have never offered people some alternative mechanisms that would show we take abortion seriously without being restrictive or punitive. So that seems to me, that's been the failure that I see of my movement is is, um, that because we concentrated so much on the political and because we adopted a stance that was defensive, we started after Roe, we had what we wanted. Mm. And so what we did was defend against any incursions on what we wanted. And so we became not a visionary movement that talks about what would legal abortion look like in a caring and loving society. But we talked about no. We became the party of no. No change, Hmm. no nothing. You know, I want to read, this is a sentence you wrote. I just, I think it's really 
wonderfully clear and provocative. Um, uh, this is something you wrote after this Open Hearts, Open Minds, and oh, Fair-minded, yes. Fair-Minded Words conference at Princeton. I'd like to I'd t- I'd like to talk about that, too. But you said that one of the things that conference did is made you and others aware of a need to tend one's own house. And here's one way you, you summarize, I think, partly what you just said. This assumption, assertion, premise that making babies is serious business and sex is a pleasurable and meaningful activity with social consequences. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think that and I and I think that we as now I think that I actually think, you know, in this this discussion about um, civil discourse, I think that there are at least there are multiple layers in having civil discourse. I'm actually finding it easier to have civil discourse with some people who are opposed to abortion than I am having civil discourse within my own movement. Yeah. Well, that's... And I'm sure that's true for those who are opposed to abortion. You yes. know, the, the poor person on the, on, the, on, the, uh, the, on the side of those opposed to abortion who deviates from absol- the absolutism of making it totally illegal mm-hmm. is, um, is very castigated by their movement. And they've got to fight, you know, they've been fighting over incrementalism versus absolutism, you know, for years. And now, you know, there is just the beginning on the choice side of the same kinds of discussions over, um, again, you know, sticking the line that abortion is, you know, largely an absolute right of women, or thinking about, as I put it, not so much thinking about restrictions, but thinking about ways in which we as pro-choice people can let the American public know that we think abortion is serious business. We think making babies is very serious, very serious responsibility. Mm. I, I think that's, you know, the human condition and an irony of this moment we live in where pluralism is real and a lot of us are living into it, but some of our bitterest disagreements are with those who are closer to us, right? Well, it's always that way in the family. I mean, yes. all, of, the, all yes. of this is all of this is based, you know, ultimately, you know, people say family is the basic unit of society, <laughs> and I would have some disagreements with that. I think that yeah. the community is, but, you know, these are all these are all reflections of the dynamics between, you know, it's the same dynamic between a couple. Yeah. There is nothing worse than your partner disagreeing with you in public. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a partner, mm-hmm. and you and your partner, you believe something very deeply, and your partner goes out and criticizes you in public or says something different. I mean, that is really devastating yeah much more devastating than somebody who you know you already some, know you don't have anything in common what do you know you don't you think you have nothing in common <laughs> yeah. with disagrees who cares yeah you know so, and so that's what we're struggling with in the in our movement and I, I want you to tell me about dialogues conversations approaches that that you have been part of these last years that that are mm-hmm. opening this up and that are very different from mm-hmm. this either or pro-con politicized abortion discussion that we're used to. Um, you know, I've been, I was reading about the Public Conversations Project. Yes, I was going to mention them. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. to tell, what, what, mm-hmm. what stories would you want to tell people about how this conversation is unfolding? Well, first of all, I was very lucky in that uh, I met the people in the Public Conversations Project in the early 90s around a different conversation effort than the straight-out abortion one. I met them around a conversation that they organized that lasted for two years between feminists, environmentalists, and uh, population 
uh, and the population establishment, the oh, old line population control people. <laughs> and um, so I had the benefit of, of working with them in a group of 30 or 40 people who met, as I said, over a two-year period to come to understand each other better. And so that was my first formal experience at, at Dialogue. And um, and it was a very successful Dialogue, and people stuck with it. And it actually made changes um, in terms of, of how these three groups worked together at the policy level. I then became involved with them when they turned their attention to the abortion issue. Most strongly, they turned it at the time when... Um, uh, there were the murders of abortion providers in Boston. And that was the mid-90s, right? Mid-90s. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they, they I did with them was um, I asked if they would conduct a dialogue with me and one person who is pro-life, who I respected a great deal, a professor at Fordham University who was a progressive Democrat. And um, we met with them for an entire day. We talked with each other for six hours in a facilitated discussion that was videotaped uh, for posterity mm-hmm. um, and in which there were like six facilitators engaged in working with the two of us, one in the room and four or five behind the two-way mirror. Mm-hmm. And so that was my first um, and, and it was a very profitable encounter. What I think is very important is I'm not a big believer in common ground. Let me be very frank about that. Uh, I think that common ground... You mean the notion of common ground, right? that, that the way we yeah. will resolve our disagreements is by yeah, finding yeah. our common ground. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I just think that it's, it's just, you know, I mean, I think that common ground can be found between people who do not have deep, deep differences. Um, and in politics, you can find compromise. Compromise is that politics is the art of the possible. But to think that you are going to take the National Conference of Catholic Bishops and the National Organization of Women, and they are going to find common ground on abortion, is is not practical. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we could extend that. But I do think that... Um, when people who disagree with each other come, and this is the the essence of the Princeton conference you're talking about, mm-hmm. come together with a goal of gaining a better understanding of why the other believes what they do, good things come of that. But the pressure of coming to agreement works against Mm. really understanding each other. Mm. And we don't understand each other. And the polarization that exists on the abortion issue in which people have called each other names and demonized each other for the past 30 years speaks against, um, it definitely speaks against any desire, any level of trust that enables people to, to come to some commonality. And so that you, you really have to start with this first idea that there are some people, not all, who see some benefit in learning why the other thinks the way that they do. 
And, um, you know, it's, it's some of it's the simplistic stuff of uh, humanization, that the person becomes a real person, not just not an extremist, mm, not a liar, mm-hmm. not evilly motivated, mm-hmm. um, you know, that perhaps for some people you can overcome the epithets that we have charged each other with. And that I'm a very strong believer in. I have learned, I have changed my views on some aspects of abortion over the last 10 years uh, based upon having a deeper understanding of the values and concerns of people who disagree with me. Hmm. And I have an interest in trying to, as a result, I have an interest in trying to find a way that I can honor some of their values without giving up mine. Hmm. That's, for me, what has happened. And and that is, um, again, different from this rush that I think we have in this culture to this little sit kind of a, a, a parallel to finding common ground, getting on the same page, right? Right. <laughs> because right. you're not talking about getting on the same page. No, no. But, you know, it, it's uh, Sidney Callahan, who is against abortion, against legal abortion, generally speaking, a uh, long time ago said that, you know, the hallmark of a civil debate is when you can acknowledge that which is good in the position of the person you disagree with. And there is much good in the positions and concerns of those who are opposed to abortion. They are not all, or even mostly, people who hate women, who... um, yeah, well, that's the big one, you know, that, that's charged at them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not undemocratic. They're, you know, they're not lacking in compassion. Um, they're not, you know, they're not all merely anti-abortion and not pro-life. They have some very good values that they are concerned are being lost um, in the way in which our society treats abortion. Yes, there are many of them who are just simply absolutist and they just want abortion to be illegal. But but you can't even I can't even be bothered with those people because I'm much more interested in the ones who have more complex positions on the issue and f- figuring out. I mean, I think that many people could come to tol- many people who currently think are currently working to make abortion much more restricted could come to a degree of comfort about legal abortion if they felt that those of us who are in charge of abortion in this country mm-hmm. were more sensitive to the seriousness of the decision to have an abortion, the decision to become pregnant, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that they could relax a little bit if they didn't have their preconceptions of us as just basically out there to assume that any difficulty a woman faces with a pregnancy speaks to an automatic decision that she should have an abortion. Right. 
which is a simplistic reading. Which is a simplistic reading. It's not, and and uh, my colleagues become upset when I speak this way, because it's not what they believe. Mm-hmm. And but I still think that there, and it's certainly not the way most people in most clinics where abortion is performed act. But our need or our feeling that we must defend against every incursion leads us to sound that way in public. So I want to clarify that this Princeton project we've mentioned a couple times, um, mm-hmm. which kind of sparked this think this this reflection on your part. It was something. Mm-hmm. This was just in September 2010. Open hearts, open minds. October. In, October yeah. 2010. Open my open hearts, open minds, fair-minded words. I am aware uh, that. Um, I don't know. You tell me if this is true. I, I've I've heard that in in pro-choice circles and more mm-hmm. liberal feminist circles, there was a sense yeah. that that conference was loaded with conservatives. <laughs> <laughs> but that Francis, that you <laughs> soldiered forth. Yes. Um, um, well, that's not true. I mean, first no? of all, it's okay. not true. Okay. There, look, I would say two things about the conference. First of all, uh, there were four of us who organized it. Uh, two of us are pro-choice, and two, two of the organizers were pro-life. There were 42 speakers. Only 15 of them were pro-life. Hmm. So in terms of, and the rest of them were among the strongest, uh, most often feminist advocates of the right to choose abortion. So hmm. on the speaker side, those of us who were pro-choice one, if you want to look at it that way. So where did that perception come from? The, the perception, I think, is correct in that, um, and we argued in the steering committee among the four of us uh, vehemently because I felt, um, I came in late, and I felt that the way in which the conference was framed was these the questions that the conference asked were for the most part Questions framed in the way those who are pro-life think about the abortion issue. So the framing of the conference so for example, what was offensive. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so for example, the first three panels um, had as their starting point the moral status of the fetus. Okay. There was no session on the moral status of the woman. So many on the pro-choice side felt that women got lost. I don't disagree with them. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was one of the organizers. Um, you know, you go into organizing something like this and you don't get everything you want. Um, and you try to balance it out and play it out in different ways. So I tried to get what I thought would be a more balanced approach, raising many of the concerns that my pro-choice colleagues did. I didn't win. I didn't go away. I didn't complain. Right. I just made sure that we got more speakers <laughs> okay. right. who could challenge those assumptions. Um, and so the same thing you're hearing, you know, that many pro-choice people, particularly my feminist colleagues, felt that women were invisible in the conference, in spite mm-hmm. of the fact that most of the speakers were women. Sixty percent of the attendees were women. And, um, you know, that's, you know that, that, but that frame was very troubling, and I agree with them. Okay. On the other hand, those who were pro-life, my two pro-life colleagues on this, took considerable heat from the classic 
uh, pro-life movement that they had given away the store in terms of the speakers. Okay. So, you know, it, 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 that's, the nature, that's the nature of the beast. Right. Um, there were concerns on the part of pro-choice people that there weren't women on the program talking about their experience with abortion. Um, that how can you have such a conference without actually hearing from the women who have abortion? I think it's a good point. However, we had to think about this. And I think my colleagues forget that if we had had women who were speaking about their experiences of abortion, we would have had women speaking about um, their bad experiences with abortion. Right, right. As well as women speaking about their good experiences of abortion. Mm -hmm. So there's always tension in these things. And the question is, how much goodwill and how much discipline? I mean, I think that the dialogue requires an enormous amount of discipline. You have got to put up with things you don't like, just as the others have to put up with things they don't like. And, you know, so that's what I would say. <laughs> you know, I, I want to I read you something <laughs> that I was really struck by that you wrote out of that. You said, um, okay. you were giving a list of a couple of qualities um, that you thought were necessary if we, as you said, if we are to continue the conversation to bring constructive right. forward-thinking approach forward-thinking approaches to what has been a long and difficult issue. One of them that really struck me was the courage to be vulnerable in front yes. of those we passionately disagree with. Right. Right. And I think that's the hardest thing to do. And I think that at Princeton, we barely scratched the surface in terms of our ability to do that. I think it is very hard for all of us in these situations to acknowledge, for example, that we just don't have the answers to this problem. I don't think we have the answers to the problem of abortion in our society, or whether it's the problem of abortion itself or the problem of how we're going to mediate our differences about abortion. Um, and a willingness to admit that is very, very difficult. I mean, what we wanted people at Princeton to do, and this is, again, I would say the public conversation is so great at this, is to um, be able to say, what is it in your own position that gives you trouble? Mm. What is it in the position of the other that you are attracted to? Where do you have doubts? Because it is only, I think, when we, if, if we are interested in understanding each other, and if we are ultimately interested, and it's not a question of common ground, but if we are ultimately interested in an abortion policy that reflects what is good in the concerns of those who disagree, the only way we're going to get any sense of what that is, is if we can acknowledge what is good in the position of the other, acknowledge what troubles us about our own position. Now, there are people in my community who are troubled about nothing with their position. <laughs> and and good, goody for them, I guess. Goody for them. I find it, I mean, I, I, I've said this to somebody recently. I said, you know, I don't understand how you can work on an issue for 35 years as complicated as this and never change your mind at all about anything but don't you think also that again you know the the whole the whole context the whole ambience of our public 
hand-wringing over these intimate issues that get at our sexuality and our core mm-hmm. identity, right? There's yeah. so much fear. It's an atmosphere yes. of fear. Yes. And, I mean, it, it is precisely in an atmosphere of fear where people don't feel safe, where they don't feel, um, yeah, where they don't feel safe enough. You, you have to be, yes. feel safe enough to show vulnerability, right. to express well, but doubts. You know, let me say, let me say I think, I think yeah, that's one thing, that's one aspect of this. But there are some others. What we've been doing hasn't been working. Now, maybe some people think it's been working. but And I think that, that you become more willing to be vulnerable at a moment when you recognize that what you have done has not gotten you where you want to be. So there is that element of part of vulnerability is some modicum of helplessness. Hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. and if you don't think you need any help, Mm -hmm. and you think everything is just hunky dory, well, then there's no reason, you know, there's no, there's no, there's absolutely no reason to be vulnerable. Most of us, when we, and and I think that the the fascinating thing, at least for those of us who are, you know, on the choice side, which tends to be more progressive and more liberal, we are the first people to criticize fear-based politics. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. So. We can't operate from fear. Mm. We, we've got, you've, somebody, ha, some people have to step forward and not, you know, it's a, it was Pope John Paul II's motto on his crest, be not afraid, you know. Mm. <laughs> and so, and that's the story. We, be not afraid. You know, it, again, you know, to pull this into a religious context, this is what we, I mean, are the things about Catholicism that, I think stick with me are, first of all, nobody ever told me being a Catholic or being engaged in public life um, was a popularity contest. You know, Christians are not called to be popular. (laughs) And so you kind of, you know, so a lot of that stuff is in me in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're called to speak the truth with humility Okay, with humility, because the truth, we may not be right, but we're called to say what we think. And if it's popular one week, very nice. And if it isn't, well, that's that's the way it goes. Hmm. And so I think that, you know, there Hmm. is some need to be for some people and some people on both sides of the abortion equation, more often than not, people with either religious backgrounds or in the religious community have decided that they are willing to be unpopular. With their own community. And I don't say that as any kind of martyr. You know, I mean, I'm the, I'm by no means a martyr. And I, you know, it's like, oh, woe is me. I have no sense of woe, woe is me. I have a great life. Um, but but I think that, you know, you, you, you can't be motivated by, you can't be motivated completely by a desire um, to have the choir singing your praises. Right. <laughs> um, okay, so we're. Can we keep going? This is just great. Yeah, I can go I like as long it. as okay. you want to go. We're going to go. We, got, we, can, we have this studio for another 20 minutes. I just, this is just okay. great. Okay. No, so no, I wanna, I'm, I'm with you. All right. <laughs> I, I want to I test something out on you. I've been, okay. This is an idea I've had. That, again, these issues, like, they're, they're so different in many ways, but say abortion and gay marriage. Let's say those are the two right. lightning rod issues. Right. What, what binds them is that they're both about these intimate sexual aspects of life. Um, right. Um. And it, it, it strikes me that, that um, there are people, 
um, on all sides of these issues who are literally caught in them, right? The the the, the pregnant women, um, and this, and on the pro life side, someone would say the innocent unborn child, right? Right. Um, uh, but. Um, you know, you are someone, you've become, I don't know what somebody's called you, the philosopher of the Alan pro-choice Goodman. movement. And what did I say? Yeah. Someone else called you the abortion queen. All right. Right. And the cardinal of choice. I Card- Cardinal of choice. Okay. Yeah. So, but you, again, are someone who you've never married. You don't have children of your own. It's, there's, and I, I feel like in these issues, there's, um, these things are painful and personal for so many people. Yes, and that there's a role for you know what people I see like you as a for bridge people, who aren't um, personally caught in that trauma, mm-hmm. and yet can be a voice. Um, yes, I guess so. Um, and that that's really important. I mean, and, and I think I think that that's uh, if that's true, then it's important to raise that up to point at it, because that suggests a role for all kinds of people in our culture who may not feel like they are, want to be issues-based, but do care about the fabric of our common life. Right. I don't know. Although I would, I would just say that, that the fact that I've never been married and I've never wanted children and I've never had children does not mean that I haven't been sexual. Mm-hmm. And so as a woman who uh, was, I'm now 67 years old, so fertility is no longer a question. <laughs> um, but, you know, for many years I was fertile. And so the potential of becoming pregnant um, was in my life. And I think that, that it has a profound effect. I mean, probably a more profound effect on me um, than it might have had on a person who wanted children mm-hmm. and who had a vision of their own life as uh, bound in a more conventional uh, marriage, family, etc. It was very important for me not to become pregnant. Mm-hmm. More important, I think, than for women like me. I think it is was was really, really critical. And um, I think that that you know, again, I want to go back, although it's not quite the topic we're on, to this whole question of the seriousness of the power and responsibility that women have as life givers mm-hmm. and how poorly understood that is and articulated in our society um, and that it does very much affect, um, you know, I am pro-life in the extent, to the extent that, in many ways, and certainly to the extent that I believe that the power I have as a woman to give life, which is much greater power than the power that men have in this arena. And, you know, we haven't talked about that, but that's there too. Um, Requires of me an enormous burden of responsibility to make good decisions about when to begin that process of creation and when not to begin that process of creation. That, for me, is the crux of the moral question around all of this. 
You you have said that personally for you. I mean, the, the, the crux question that often comes up in these heated discussions about abortion will be, mm-hmm. you know, how would you feel if your mother had aborted you? Oh, yes, I wrote a piece about that. Uh-huh. And yeah. you, you've said that, that for you, uh, it, it doesn't have that, it's not that killer question. Well, it's not. And in fact, it, it, the question was asked of me in a different way at the end of the Princeton conference. And I actually, you know, people were actually blown away by my response. But um, what I have said you know, is that, um, you know, in fact, my mother did not want me. Um, she was a 17-year-old, 18-year-old young woman who came from a coal mining town in Pennsylvania, uh, again, very working class, to New York, got pregnant, um, chased the soldier who got her pregnant, and they married. And I was the result of that union. And she did it again three more times. And I don't think my mother ever wanted to have, in the sense I became pregnant three more Mm. times and had three more children. I don't think my mother ever wanted to have children. Um, She was not a bad mother. um, But her life was embittered by the burden of children she did not want. And when I reflect on the fetus... Um, you know, which does not have the capacity to choose as a woman does. And I reflect on the life of my mother. I would like to think that I have become the kind of person who, if as a fetus I had had the capacity to choose, would have been prepared to sacrifice coming into the world, in spite of the fact I have had a glorious life, um, for a better life for my mother. And um, I I think that, you know, again, that's, for me, I I think, you know, the way in which we see this, you know, this, to me, it's a way of bridging, that, that story is a way of bridging the adversarial role we give women and fetuses. Hmm. Hmm. Women and fetuses are not adversaries. <laughs> mm-hmm. And 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 yes, it's true that it's allegorical in a way and fantastical because the fetus does not have that capacity to sacrifice. Um, but I think, you know, we have to think about this. The, these are two entities who, as with the rest of us in the world, care for each other. And we don't assume that there is one answer in each relationship. Hmm. So I want to ask you also, you have been struggling with kidney disease. Now, I've yes, read a right. few things that you knew that. over the last few years. <laughs> Do you have a donor? I've been reading about your... <laughs> Did that happen? Well, my, kid, my kidneys have, um, have uh, continued... My kids, as I call them. Okay. <laughs> How are your kids, people ask me. Uh, um, my kids have been behaving well, and so I have not needed to actualize... Um, uh, you know, I have not yet had to even cross the threshold of uh, final, do- of you know, getting a donor finally approved. When I first was diagnosed at a point where it looked like, uh, you know, I would need a kidney within a year or so, which was three years ago, 24 people came forward and offered me their kidneys, <laughs> which was very gratifying. Mm. And um, several of them have been tested, and the first few that were tested um, turned out 
not to have strong enough kidneys themselves for me. And then because my kidneys improved, we stopped testing. Um, I don't know when I will have to begin testing again because my kidneys have been okay. But um, I, I, I got two more offers for kidneys last week from, you know, people who are friends who 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 didn't know my situation three years ago, but know it now and said, I want to be your donor. You know, so I got people fighting to be my donor. <laughs> well, you know, and so I was preparing to, to talk to you in, in this large context. But I'm willing to take any more donors on the list. <laughs> okay, well, well, now it's on air. <laughs> you know, what, what, I, what occurs to me is I wondered how this experience yes. has flowed into all the thinking you've done and all the passion Absolutely. you've put all these years towards thinking about our bodies as yes. at once private and public. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the concept of donation, the concept, mm. I mean, I'm fat, it, it really extended my consciousness around the notion, the, the, the whole idea of the gift of life. Mm. Um, mm. And I have written a little bit about the relationship between someone giving a part of their body to me and that you know it's it's like oh this is so terrible um it's sort of it's sort of like communion okay Mm. that someone a part of someone else's body is going to be in me for the rest of my life and a foreign part that I am going to have to work through drugs for my body not to reject it. These are very um, interesting philosophical uh, reflections that I've made. Also, the gift that we, for example, when somebody gives a kidney or any other organ, most other organs are given after you die. Um, we applaud that person as the most altruistic of human beings. This is like these are heroes, and very few people are willing to give their kidneys to others, um, which is sad. But women give their bodies every day to a fetus to bring it into the world. And every pregnancy carries with it the risk of death. We know women who have perfectly normal pregnancies in our own society who are well off with good medical care who die Mm -hmm. on the table. Not a lot of them, but the risk is there for every woman. And we somehow do not see these women as the heroic givers of life that they are. Pregnancy is normal. Having babies is normal. It's natural. It's no big deal that women do this. It is a big deal that women give their bodies to bringing new life into the world. And I'm thinking, as I hear you say that, and as as I hear you say it with that emotion, that 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 would not have been the first thing out of your mouth whenever in 1970 when you first no. went to work for the abortion clinic. That that It sounds to me like that for you is the, the defining reality, um, mm-hmm. and I think the animating real, reality behind right. this. And I think for those who are opposed to abortion, the challenge 
you know, the, the passion that they feel for the fetus as a, you know, in their minds, you know, their reflection is a defenseless, innocent entity, person, just waiting to come into the world. And isn't that wonderful? And yes, it is wonderful. But what the child, and I think those of us who are pro-choice need to see that. But what I think those who are opposed to abortion need to open their minds to is the heroism of the gift of life that every woman who is pregnant makes. And when you understand that, it becomes more complex in terms of this so-called either the fetus or the woman, the fetus or the woman, mm-hmm. or uh, women should. You, you see more that the concept of gifts freely given and the gift of life has to be freely given. You know, I've always thought that if we were really talking about this theologically as opposed mm-hmm. to politically, yeah. we would have to speak in terms of gifts rather than rights. I mean, rights exactly. is a concept that's foreign to the Bible, but gift, but choice and life right, are right. gifts. Right. Um, what do you think you've learned uh, about how social change happens? Like, what what would progress yep. look like now in these years um, ahead of you? With, well, with your own kidneys or with other people's <laughs> kidneys? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's a very, that's a very difficult question. Um, what have I learned? I, I guess... Really, uh, it has become, I mean, it's something I learned when I left Catholics for Choice three years ago, and I was lucky enough to get a fellowship to go to Harvard at the Radcliffe Institute. I learned a great deal there about how we learn and how we communicate with each other. It was, it was really a remarkable experience, and that uh, the need to approach others positively and um, with enthusiasm for difference (laughs) um, is absolutely critical to any change. There is no way to change somebody I mean, I'm not, you know, like I'm the toughest of fighters. Let's let's be very clear. I mean, my reputation, you know, for being devastating. in debate is legendary. But, and, and you know, and I love a good fight, but I, and I love to win. <laughs> but I think that what I have learned is that, you know, the, the simplistic way of putting it is that you can catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's a very wise saying. But I have learned that change really First of all, I think change comes about at the margins. I've always believed that. People in the center are not going to be the big change makers. You've got to put yourself at the margins um, and be willing to risk in order to make change. But that more importantly, you have got to approach differences, as I said, with this notion that there is good in, there is good in the other. It's just, that's it. And that if we can't figure out how to do that, and if we keep thinking, if both sides on the abortion, if there isn't the crack in the middle where 
the people where there are some people on both sides who ref- absolutely refuse to see the other as evil. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to continue. I mean, I'm not I'm not a big sin person. I'm I'm you know like I'm more of an original blessing rather than <laughs> okay. an original, original sin, sin person. Right. I hate the language of evil. I just think it's just so unproductive. Mm. What I think is really emboldening to others, let's say to people who might be listening about what you just said, is thinking about change on the margins as opposed to the margins where you are marginalized, right? Because right. this model, this approach you're talking about, it really does fly in the face of the logic and the the etiquette of what happens in politics, what happens on TV talk shows. Right. Um, but you're saying that still is, is where where the pressure comes that makes its right. way. Right. And there's a lot of pressure to be that way. It's much easier. It's much easier to be that way. Mm-hmm. It's much easier. It's much easier to, you know, like, uh, you know, it's again, it's it, it's the preaching to the choir versus, you know, talking to people, listening to people who disagree with you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the choir is already there. The choir doesn't need us. <laughs> Anything else you want to add? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a big conversation. Now you try to edit this. <laughs> I will. This is what I'm good at. Good. But, I, I look forward to it. Well, you will. You'll like the finished product. We can all I'm use sure digital editing. But we make the original conversation available as well. And you wouldn't believe how many people are willing to listen to it real 90-minute conversation. So, Great. Yeah, I love so it. it's exciting. So we'll let you know. This is going to be in January before we produce this, and we'll let you oh, know, that's great. give you a heads up. We'll also like Good. to tell people in your circles so that people can listen. Sure, I'll send out. I'll do the, I'll do big okay. emails to okay. listservs and all that kind of thing. Okay. And, um, you know, remember that January 22nd is always the Supreme Court anniversary, so it's ah, always a okay. time that you might think about this as oh, having I meaning. I didn't think about that. Okay. Yeah, well, it's just been delightful to speak Likewise. with you. And uh, we'll, we'll do it again. again. Okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.